Hi, I'm Dr. Sam Bars. Thanks for downloading this episode of the Youth in Education podcast, where we explore developments in education, research and policy that affect young people, primarily in the UK, with a range of expert guests. This podcast is brought to you by the Centre for Education and Youth. Hi, and welcome to the Youth in Education podcast. In this episode, the Centre for Education and Youth's Vanessa Joshua interviews former CEO Loic Menzies on the topic of tutoring. Loic recently authored the new CFUY report, A Space for Maths, in partnership with Third Space Learning, who provide high-quality, low-cost tutoring to nearly a thousand schools across the country. Loic and Vanessa discuss the importance of maths, the impact of poor numeracy skills on young people as they move through the education system, and the potential of tutoring to help overcome challenges in the subject. We hope you enjoy listening. The Centre for Education and Youth believes society should ensure all children and young people receive the support they need to make a fulfilling transition to adulthood. Find us at cfey.org. So Loic, I know from your blog that you're quite interested in this research for some personal reasons. Would you be able to tell me a little bit more about that? Yeah, definitely. So um, as soon as I started doing this research, I realised suddenly I was coming across all sorts of literature which really tallied with some experiences I had myself with maths because I actually didn't have a great relationship with uh, learning maths at school um, and neither did my parents so I kind of grew up really disliking maths um, and not really understanding why it mattered um, and only realising later in life just uh, how how much it kind of offered a key to getting into all sorts of different things. So I mentioned in, in my blog about how I really wanted to do chemistry A-level at school but that Suddenly I realised because I hadn't managed to master maths at school, it was much, much harder for me to do chemistry. And the same thing happened to me later on when I was trying to study economics. And the same thing sometimes happens for me in, in my research when I'm trying to do more quantitative work. So trying to, learning a little bit more about why people struggle with maths and what kind of things can help with that um, became really interesting to me because I could see how many missed opportunities there'd been for me to to turn a corner and, and actually get on top of maths. Mm, that's quite interesting. I think a lot of us have quite a funny relationship with maths. I think I pretty much disliked it until I funny enough started working as a TA and I had to support some of the students and I realised, okay, I really need to brush up on my skills. And funny enough, as I started to do it, I think as I've got older and now you kind of see the logic side of maths, I found it a little bit easier. I don't know if you found the same. Yeah, completely. And and how it all fits together. And yeah, it's, it's just that sometimes you just need to see how it how it all lays lays out and how one thing builds on the, on the other. And I think, I guess, yeah, as we'll come to in a bit, I think part of the reason people have those difficulties is because because each bit sits on the bit before it. Um, mm-hmm. If you if you miss a step, it can be really hard to get back into it. Yeah, absolutely. Um, That's super interesting. Um, Would you actually mind starting to tell us a little bit about the research more broadly um, and some of the things that you're trying to find out through the research? Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, it started off as um, I think the starting point was to think about how the pandemic um, has affected learning in maths. And we were particularly focusing in on um, on primary maths uh, here. Um, and so having so looking first yeah into into what 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 problems pupils had faced uh, during the pandemic when it came to maths and then trying to think what the impact of that might be so firstly in terms of the, the short term short to medium term in terms of their fu- pupils future maths learning and then thinking uh, more long term how that might affect uh, society uh, the economy 
Um, and a lot of the things that people, young people might try to do later on in their life. So just like just like what I was saying in my own experiences, what might be the long term impact of some of the some of the issues uh, with maths learning during a pandemic. Um, but because we're always interested in solutions and um, we then wanted to try and see whether tutoring can offer a solution. So as most people, most listeners will know, um, the government has staked quite a lot of its uh, learning recovery plan on tutoring. Um, so we wanted to see whether whether they were right to pick that focus. Could tutoring offer a solution to the to the learning loss um, in maths? Um, and and by to do that, we wanted to understand what what the situation um, with maths tutoring was in the past historically, and what problems it might be able to address, and whether those are the right ones. And finally, uh, once we'd looked at whether it could offer a solution, um, we wanted to understand uh, what a solution would need to look like. So, um, what if we want to meet schools' needs? If we want to meet pupils' and teachers' needs and parents' needs? What's tutoring going to going to need to look like, and what's this policy that the government's implemented around the national tutoring program going to have to look like? Mm, that sounds really interesting. It looks like it seems like you've covered quite a few key topics. Um, would you mind actually running us through some of the key findings? So maybe if we start with what you found in terms of the impact um, the pandemic has had on maths and maths learning. Yeah. So. Um... When it comes to that, we found that unfortunately the uh, impact of a pandemic has been worse in maths uh, than other subjects like English. Um, and that's important because even before the pandemic, the gap between disadvantaged and more advantaged pupils uh, was already bigger in um, in maths than it was in English. So um, 17.5 months um, as a ballpark compared to 16.2 months. Um, and then the research looking at the widening of the gaps and so on uh, shows that, um, um, for example, research done by Rising Stars showed that year six pupil premium pupils are um, seven now seven months uh, behind. Um, and and the, the gap seems to have widened according to the FFT uh, in maths, but not in English. So we have this particular issue with um, with maths learning during the pandemic. Um, and we can go into the reasons why that might be the case a bit later, perhaps. Yeah, I would love to kind of pick up on that in a second. Um, I'll make a note to make sure to jump back onto that. <laughs> um, I would love to know kind of what you think the long term effects are going to be. So I know you mentioned before that you ne didn't necessarily like maths, for example. Do you think that this is something that could continue with the young people or are there other long term implications? Yeah, so... Um... One of the things we did was we actually took a look at some Department for Education data about the key stage two results pupils achieve and the key stage four results pupils achieve um, and to see the strength of the relationship between the two. So uh, and we compared that in maths and English. And we found that one of the things about maths learning is that how well you do at primary school uh, is more closely linked to how well you do in your key stage four results in maths uh, than in than in English. So it's harder uh, for those pupils who've struggled in maths, particularly those disadvantaged pupils, therefore, um, to to make up for lost ground once they get to secondary school. So we can see that that's already started, that already risks a, a longer term impact. And then when you look at um, sort of later in life, um, we see that you know, there was a 2014 survey which showed that one third of people felt that they'd been held back in life uh, by their, their lack of math skills um, and there's one study that looks at um, what's termed health literacy so people's ability to understand information about health um, and it seems that about two-thirds of people don't actually have a level of maths that allows them to understand um, basic health information and um, so we can see that if you've got this situation 
where pupils are being held back in their learning at primary school. That is then closely linked to how well they do at Key Stage 4. And then that then um, has this knock-on impact um, uh, on longer-term longer term outcomes being held back in life and on health information. Um, and, and that then obviously has a bigger impact on society. So pro bono economics um, estimate that there's a £20 billion a year cost of the, um, to the economy of people's lack of math skills. So we can see that there's a kind of snowballing, which just makes it so important for us to get in there early um, and address that widening of the gap. Absolutely. Um, and you mentioned kind of there was a huge gap in maths and this has widened, um, but it wasn't necessarily the case in English. Are you able to tell me a little bit more about this? Yeah. So, I mean, we don't know that much about why that's the case, but it's quite, it's quite, um, it, we can we can kind of make some guesses about that based on some of the other research, uh, other literature out there. So we know that parents tend not to feel very confident um, about their maths ability, which is something we we'll, um, we touch on throughout the report. Um, so you can understand why when pupils are spending more time at home, primary school kids, parents might feel more able to read a book with their children or to have conversations about you know topics in the news with their children and so on. Or um, yeah, all sorts of learning can take place at home subject to you know parents ability to to put that time in and so on but it's much harder for them to do that in maths uh, as as if, if they're not feeling confident it's also the case that you know things like maths learning uh, are not uh, that you do at school are not things you just stumble across in the same way um every day necessarily so um so it's a bit harder for parents to reinforce uh, reinforce that sort of thing um, and there's also a whole issue um, with maths whereby the, the methods used to teach maths or to work out, um, say, a multiplication problem or a fraction problem have often changed um, since parents were at school. Um, and as a result, they find it harder to kind of understand what's going on in their kids' schoolwork and to, to help them understand things. Um, so all of these things mean it's a little bit harder, possibly, for parents to kind of keep learning going on at home in maths compared to other subjects during the pandemic. Mm, that makes sense. And were there any issues in terms of teaching numeracy during the pandemic that maybe exacerbated this? Yeah, we didn't, we haven't come across that, but it may well be the case. It may, it, yeah, I've, I've not come across that, but I'd love to hear, you know, from teachers about how they found, how, how they found teaching maths and how that compared and setting activities and so on. Uh, it would be interesting to hear how, how, how teachers found that. Mm. So I know in the report, one of the themes that were kind of picked up was this idea that once students have difficulties in maths, particularly at an early stage, it's quite hard for them to be able to pick up um, these skills in comparison to subjects such as English, for example. Are you able to kind of delve into more about what the research said and why, that, why this is the case? Yeah, definitely. Um, so there's been quite a lot of, of research on this. Um, and so there's some, some really key papers on this. Um, so there's, for example, a, a um, paper by Dalka et al. in um, Frontiers in Psychology, which looks at um, what they call maths anxiety. So there's a lot about maths anxiety in the literature. And the idea there is that, you know, as confidence falls, and this is kind of parental and pupil anxiety, um, they, it can lead um, pupils to avoid mathematical tasks. I certainly remember doing that, doing everything I could to avoid having to do maths, finding excuses not to go to maths lessons, all that kind of thing, um, or, or just kind of avoiding those tasks, getting someone else to do them. Um, so, so there's that avoidance, um, which obviously then means it's harder to catch up. 
Um, and secondly, there's the issue of cognitive overload. So um, if, if if you've got that low confidence and that anxiety, it can lead to cognitive overload, which makes it even harder to do to do well in maths. Um, so that 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 comes up in um, quite a lot of research, um, and and that's and you see it particularly. Um, you can see it in certain areas of maths. Um, so there's a paper by Siegler et al, which looks at what are the biggest, uh, what are the early predictors of pupils who struggle in maths later on. Um, and they find, for example, that um, that your ability to do fractions when you're 10 is really highly predictive of how well you'll go on to do in maths. Um, because apparently a lot of us, oh, you know, this is where my lack of maths comes in. <laughs> um, but but uh, apparently uh, the way you solve fractions um, has a lot in common with some of the more complicated mathematical stuff you do later on in terms of algebra and so on. Um, and therefore, you know, if you're really struggling to do some of the operations around multiplying and dividing fractions and things, it then become it. You'll also find it really hard um, to solve certain algebraic problems and things. Um, so we can see how you know one one early skill like that builds a later skill, and a gap in that early on can lead to a gap uh, later on. So in the research, you were also looking at some possible solutions in terms of closing this gap um, and ensuring that students have the right skills in order to thrive in maths. What are some of the solutions that you looked at? So we were particularly focused on um, tutoring for this, um, partly because it's what the government has decided to um, invest a huge amount of money in, and partly because we were partnering with Third Space Learning for this report, who were a provider of tutoring and were one of the providers of the National Tutoring Programme in the first year. Um, so we were trying to see whether whether it's true uh, that tutoring might offer a solution, um, and if so, what that solution would, would need to look like. Um, and it was really interesting when I started digging into this, because when you look at the literature on tutoring, it tends to kind of lump all subjects in together. Um, so, for example, if you look at uh, the Education Endowment Foundation's toolkit, there's a sort of entry on tutoring and it kind of gives you broad conclusions about what makes effective tutoring and how many months of learning you can get and so on. But as most listeners will know, the EF toolkit is made up of meta-analyses, so studies of other studies. Um, and when you look at the studies they've looked at to come to those conclusions, the vast majority of them are about reading um, and about English and things like that. And very few of them are actually specifically about maths which means that uh, the strong evidence base that there is around the effectiveness of tutoring is actually um, considerably um, skewed um, towards subjects other than maths. So what we needed to do was actually dig into the papers that were specifically um, about maths uh, and to understand some of the way some of the other literature that there is out there about maths tutoring. And what we found there was that although there wasn't that much uh, literature focused on maths tutoring, there was a lot of reason for thinking that actually maths tutoring, that tutoring could be more effective in maths than in some other areas. Um, so that's partly because of the issues around parental parental difficulties that I mentioned earlier on. Um, but it's um, also because uh, it's it, tutoring is actually one way you can deal with a lot of that kind of maths anxiety and so on. So um, there's a 2015 series of studies um, by Supercar et al. Um, one of them's in Nature, another one's in um, the Journal of uh, Neuroscience. Um, and what they look at is uh, that um, the way having that one-to-one -one time with a tutor 
can help kind of unpack some of the misconceptions and and build confidence back up to deal with that maths anxiety. So mm. if maths anxiety is the thing that's causing people to struggle in maths, um, then actually if you can get in there and deal with that anxiety um, and help pupils to feel a bit more confident to stop avoiding maths and to um, to deal with some of that cognitive overload um, and to tackle those misconceptions, then they might actually be able to make um, more progress. And so, for example, um, that Journal of Neuroscience um, paper by Supercar uh, shows how um, an eight-week tutoring program in maths um, kind of focused on a, a cognitive tutoring program uh, reduced maths anxiety. Um, and so, yeah, uh, our argument is that actually there's good reason for believing that there's promise in in focusing a little bit more on maths tutoring, particularly at this key point around early key stage two. Um, and, and this juncture, this weird thing about early key stage two is kind of interesting because it pops up in the research from around the world. So I just bumped into another paper from Turkey um, just a few days ago that finds exactly the same thing. But you have this thing when kids go from year three into year four, which is often when they start looking at some of the stuff around fractions and things. And they really start to um, face all these difficulties at that point. Mm-hmm. And my suspicion, um, based on this research, is that if we did a little bit more around maths tutoring at that particular point, um, then we might be able to nip some of these problems in the bud. That's interesting. And in terms of doing tutoring later, um, so key stage four, for example, what does the literature literature say about how effective it is then? Um, so, the, I mean, the literature is from a mix of different different periods. Um, you know, it it can it can definitely help. Um, but actually, uh the uptake of maths tutoring is actually quite high once you get higher up the age range. Um, it's just unfortunate that, that kids, when they're younger, seem less likely to get it in maths. So it's, it's almost like for some reason we only think maths begins to matter once it becomes you know, a, key, a key problem in the run-up to GCSEs and things. And that's when, or even, you know, you get a bit more of it in year six as well. Um, but we only seem to kind of get involved in in maths tutoring once it's really hit hit problem point whereas actually I think maybe we should be getting in there a bit earlier on and we know that primary school teachers um are, are strong believers in early intervention so I, I think it would that's where we should be looking mm, that's interesting so instead of trying to deal with the anxiety once it's kind of or the maths anxiety rather I should say um once it's already formed giving students the skills and the support to kind of make sure that they're at a point where they feel confident with maths before they're getting into kind of key stage four, for example. Yeah, totally. And I, I really think that this point around like um, year four, um, I'd be really interested to see some further research um, and a trial that specifically focused on on the first half of key stage two. Mm. And it's, you know, one of the things that it's interesting because, you know, we did this project with third space learning, um, but most of the tutoring that they've done in the past has been focused on around kind of year six. Um, and one of the things that they're hoping to do as a result of this research, because, you know, we always love a bit of action from research. Uh, one of the things they want to do is to uh, to push schools and encourage them to to take on this learning uh, take and act on this research by focusing a bit earlier on. So they're going to be making that commitment in response to this research. Mm. So you've mentioned third-based learning. Um, for those of our listeners that don't know what that is, would you be able to just give us kind of a brief description of who they are and what it is that they do in the tutoring space? Sure. So they're, um, they're an organisation um, that, um, that provides tutoring um, and it does they do so through schools. So in the past, one of the issues with tutoring has been it's often something that parents buy 
and therefore it's actually inequitable. So it, it widens gaps because more more affluent kids get it. And um, one of but third phase learning actually the the tutoring is skewed towards disadvantaged peoples because it's often commissioned by schools. Um, and what they do is that they promote they provide tutoring remotely because as we'll come to in a bit, I think one of the big issues with um, maths tutoring is the supply of tutors. Uh, there just aren't enough, you know, there's not even there's not enough maths teachers uh, to staff schools, let alone a, a whole workforce of tutors ready. Um, so they'd provide tutoring remotely um, by using um, skilled, uh, mainly graduates uh, overseas and um, who provide the tutoring one to one um, to two pupils in, in schools. Um, and they work with thousands of of, uh, of schools in England um, to provide that tutoring. One of the things you mentioned was that tutoring tends to be skewed towards middle class um, students rather than students from working class backgrounds, for example. Are you able to tell me why that this is the case? Yeah, so um, uh, so actually there's a lot of um, research on this from um, John Jerram, who's looked at some of the um, international data, for example, comparing uptake of tutoring in different countries and the reasons why people do or don't access tutoring. Um, so if you look at, um, you can compare the reasons why people say they do or don't access tutoring based on their socioeconomic background. Um, and if you look at more advantaged kids, um, more than half of them who don't have tutoring say it's because they don't need it. Um, whereas it's only a third, when it's, you look at disadvantaged kids, it's only a third of them who say the reason is because they don't need it. So basically, because it's often parents who are who are saying want their kids to do well and are worried about them not doing well in maths, it's only those who've got the um, the, the 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 money to um, to procure tutoring who do so. Um, and therefore, you know, John Jerome talks about how it's almost like a glass floor, like a, a tutoring we, uh, in, historically, because as soon as a, pa- a, a child who's more affluent looks like they might fall below a certain level, parents can can sweep in and, um, and get them the tutoring they need to avoid falling below a certain level, which just isn't an option um, for more disadvantaged kids. Mm. And did you look, um, did the literature say anything about kind of how parents feel broadly about the possibility of tutoring? Is it something that they're interested in? Yeah. Um, so there's been a lot of um, surveys looking at that recently. Um, so, for example, um, uh, the Institute for Fiscal Studies um, found that 80 percent of parents supported tutoring as a catch up policy. Um, Parent Ping found that one in 10 um, parents were thinking of getting a tutor for their child as a result of a pandemic themselves. So again, that's the kind of parents buying it. Um, So we can see that in in both those surveys, actually, tutoring came out as one of the most popular uh, responses um, to to the pandemic and the learning loss that came with it. Mm, And what do teachers and school leaders tend to think about tutoring? So that one um, depends slightly when you look at different phases. Um, so if you look at primary school and ask what people's favourite um, response is, primary schools often talk about things like more teaching assistants, uh, more teachers, um, early intervention. Obviously, tutoring can actually be one form of early intervention. Uh, we see that about half of senior leaders say that they would um, they would have small group uh, tutoring for a quarter or more of their pupil premium pupils. Um, and we find that that's higher in more disadvantaged schools and in, in primary schools. Um, so uh, we can see that it's a, it's a popular option uh, generally, I'd say, um, not necessarily the most popular response because often uh, teachers, teachers and schools would rather see kind of more systemic responses in terms mm-hmm. of uh, building school capacity and so on. 
Um, but it also depends slightly on um, on how it's done. Um, so a thing that massively is important uh, to teachers is to be really confident about um, tutors' training and experience. Um, so they really want to be reassured that any tutors are going to be properly trained, they're going to have good experience and they're going to be up to the job. Um, at secondary school, they're particularly keen to know about what qualifications they have and so on, though that's less so at primary school. Mm, that brings me quite nicely actually to my next question. So one of the things I was curious about is the challenges that there are to providing high quality tutoring. Um, could you tell me a little bit about what the research said? Yeah, sure. Um, so, I mean, a list is quite a long and getting get so getting tutoring right is going to be a real challenge. So, you know, one of the things we do in the report is come up with a list of ingredients that are needed, a sort of um, a, a kind of prototype design that is needed if, if a tutoring solution is going to work. Um, so firstly, there's a couple of kind of key questions about what approach to tutoring you want. So, for example, uh, whether you want one to one tutoring or small group tutoring. Um, and here there's a whole mix in terms of the evidence about which is most effective and there's advantages and disadvantages to both, um, so which we go through in the report. So we do a kind of comparison of the pros and cons uh, of both. Um, then there's a question about whether you want to do online or face to face. Um, so um, around there was a kind of EEF looked into this last year and about they found about a third of pupils preferred online and about two thirds preferred face to face. So that makes it sound like face to face is better. But then obviously the flip side of that is that you then have loads of practical issues in terms of finding enough space in school, getting enough tutors in, uh, managing all of that, basically, and the cost that comes of that. Um, and this cost thing, like all of these questions are also related to cost. Um, so basically, if we want to get more tutoring and get more kids to access tutoring, you also need to take into account the cost. So in the past, the EF have said, actually, maybe we should go for small group tutoring because it's more cost effective. But then if you do that, if you provide the tutoring um, online um, and through a model like third space learnings, then obviously you can do that more cheaply. So it changes that value for money. So all of these are kind of like design questions that we explore in the report. Um, and then there's a whole load of um, a whole load of kind of what makes a tutoring effective questions. So there's a few important ingredients there. So things like linking to the curriculum, because you don't obviously want the tutoring that kids are going off to do to be completely different and separate and not linked to what they're doing day to day in class. So you've got to have strong links between tutors and the teachers and what's going on in class. Um, you also want to um, make sure that kids are turning up. And any teacher, we've this kind of came out as a big problem um, last year, which I totally remember um, from my own time in teaching. And um, so, you know, particularly at secondary school, it can be really hard to get kids to turn up to after school sessions. And um, so, working out how to get attendance right is important. But it seems like that's more of an issue at secondary school than primary school. Um, and then finally, you know, have you where what spaces have you got? What technology have you got? You know, if you're providing tutoring online, then clearly issues like the digital divide uh, can become really important because they might they might stop um, pupils from having high enough quality to uh, access uh, to the internet in order to be able to receive their tutoring online. So all of those kind of practical questions need to come in. Um, but I guess I mean overall, the biggest question is you know. If we've got millions of kids who, who needing access to tutoring in order to catch up, how on earth are we going to provide that in, in a short space of time? So um, 
yeah, I think that's one of the things we look into is is, is that because you see the, the kind of scale of the government's ambition on this mm-hmm. um, versus what is practically feasible. Uh, it's really hard to marry the two. So like originally when they announced the national tutoring programme, they talked about wanting two million um two million pupils to access it but the funding was only there for 250,000 and that's now changed um, and they're now kind of talking about uh, delivering 6 million 15 hour courses that equals 90 million hours of tutoring Um, so how are you going to find 90 million hours worth of tutors when we don't just don't have these people sat around Um, and that's kind of what the key challenge the government's going to have to take on next. And in terms of these key challenges, what would you say are the main solutions to these kind of issues that we have? Um, so I think that I think that we we've got to we've got to be open minded about things like online tutoring. I think we have to. I think the the approach that third space learning have taken um, in finding you know drawing on the labour market in countries where there are a lot of STEM graduates, a lot of skilled people who are really keen to do this. Um, who are willing to go through some really intense training um, and then being able to set up a, a technological solution um, that you know, assesses where pupils are at that can then provide that one-to-one support with whatever the biggest areas of weakness are um, and which provides you know, great dialogue um, with teachers um, in terms of how the kids are progressing and, um, and what the next steps are. Um, so I think, I think some of those more technological solutions um, are probably what we need right now to in order to to, to deliver deliver something of a scale that's needed mm, and are you thinking um tech solutions in terms of delivering online rather than face-to-face I, th- I think that if we want to be delivering this kind of volume of tutoring then that's that's probably the way to go and it's clear that the, the solutions are are getting better um and certainly you know we looked at, at feedback um from teachers um on the model that we were studying and it seemed really positive um so i think i think that we're reaching the point now where although i'm <laughs> i'm usually a, a bit on the ed tech skeptic side of things um I, th- I think that this is possibly an area where um where where we might we might be getting we might be able to draw on technological solutions yeah mm, i guess that's the one upside to kind of the pandemic if there are any upsides that the move online has made things a lot more efficient. I mean, the downside is you don't have that face-to-face interaction, but you're just able to get through a lot more meetings, for example, or people that are across the country, for example, are able to have meetings um, in a much easier way than before. Obviously, it has its downfalls, unfortunately. Yeah, but I think we've also all got a bit better at um, striking up rapport online Mm. um, and remotely. Um, and for example, you know, third-based learning spend a lot of uh, time training people to develop that um, and, and kind of finding finding ways of starting off sessions to to make sure that there is some kind of conversation between between tutors and tutees first, and that's one of the things that teachers tend to feedback on quite a lot. Um, so I think it's something. Yeah, I think I think we've all learned. Uh, you know, I've learned how to do pub nights on on Zoom. <laughs> so I think lots of people have have learned how to socialise in quite different ways and and, and interact in quite different ways. Mm, absolutely it'll be interesting to kind of see where the future of tutoring goes whether it's online or face-to-face so I'd imagine maybe a combination of both at this point yeah definitely and just in terms of how that makes 
how that changes things for for schools in terms of the logistics so i mean one of the one of the issues historically with tutoring has been that if you keep having kids going out of class to go off to see a tutor then you can have kids coming in and out all the time and missing on out on different bits of, of learning whereas you know one of the teachers we saw, we got feedback from um which we include in the report talks about how they were they're able to have you know 11 or 12 kids at a time receiving one-to-one support on a headset in in a classroom in a small space uh, and having a half hour session which just makes it so much easier to plan into a day um, and 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 avoid kids missing out on too much of what might be going on in class the rest of the time so all of these things actually I think open up a lot of opportunities yeah it does seem to have opened up quite a lot of opportunities it seems to have kind of broadened the scope of who's able to access tutoring um, and also how people are able to access tutoring which is quite a positive thing yeah, and this thing of it becoming something that is commissioned by schools and teachers rather than just parents who can afford it, I think just shifts. Yeah, I've always equated tutoring with something that is a, an unequal and, and a, an unequal practice that widens divides and suddenly we have it shifting completely whereby it's something that's being targeted at the most disadvantaged so that you're, you're really helping, helping catch up. Mm, absolutely. So, Loic, given your experiences in maths that you mentioned at the beginning, what do you think this research says about the future of maths learning? Uh, I think it's well, I think it left me feeling like there was so much more we could do, which makes me feel feel quite positive. I think it's it's made me really see that 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 point in time, which I really struggled with in around around year four, I wasn't alone in that. And there is stuff that could be done about that. I think when I looked at I looked at this stat whereby um, pupils who had um doing the third space learning program and the proportion who said that they strongly agreed that they can do well in maths doubled over the course of a program Um, and I think you know the fact that there is a way of increasing that confidence and helping people to believe that they can they can achieve in maths um, at that age just means that 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 door to achieving well in maths can stay open that bit longer and give give a lot more kids the opportunity and to do well in the subject. Yeah, it definitely sounds quite positive. I think a lot of us can relate to feeling quite anxious or nervous about doing math. So it's like you said, it's good to know that we were not alone. Yeah. Um, it's something that unfortunately impacts a lot of young people, but it's something that can be changed, which yeah. I think is quite a positive thing to yeah, think and about. It's just a, it's just one of those areas where we we it, people find themselves writing off a, a subject. So, you know, people often complain about how it's almost acceptable to say, "Oh, I can't do maths. Oh, I'm rubbish at maths," and it's just seen as an extra. And actually, we, what we want is to find ways of helping more people to feel like they can say, "Actually, I can do maths. Anyone can do maths," and it, and it's just a case of getting people the support they need to do that. Mm, absolutely well the research sounds fascinating um and for anyone interested in reading the research it's up on our website thank you so much loic for speaking to me today is there anything you wanted to add before we go no thank you thanks for taking the time it's been interesting to discuss it thank you so much it's been great to speak to you thank you bye bye we love making this podcast if you enjoy listening to it as much as we enjoy making it there's a few things that you can do one subscribe hit the subscribe button in itunes or wherever you're listening two share share this episode with someone you know who will find it interesting three review write a review or leave a comment also feel free to contact us via the links in the show notes thanks a lot